Hello there, everybody. What's up, guys? And welcome back to another episode of Science in Podcast, presented by Science in Pictures Magazine, and delivered to you vocally by myself, Madison Dix, and... Myself, Jared Adelman. There you go. That's us. It's just us two here. As per usual, we are once again in the same room. Yay! Well, slightly different room, right? It is a different room. It's a bigger room. I think it's important the audience knows this, so we, yes. should, so we should short out which room we're in. It is, in podcasting, it's very important to establish a visual. Mm-hmm. Visual comedy is the yes. most important. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> if you're wondering, if you've never been here before, what we do is we actually take the headache out of peer-reviewed scientific literature. Oh, we, we sure do. We sure do. And uh, so it was my turn to pick the paper for this week, and so I decided to lean right into my roots. Um, <laughs> oh, this, this, this was a fun paper. Um, so the one I brought for us this week investigates the biochemical tricks employed by a certain infectious behavior-manipulating fungus. And how it's able to increase its rate of transmission by making necrophiliacs out of its housefly hosts. Damn, this really is right up your alley. Mm -hmm. And I'm speaking literally. Yeah, Jared really likes parasites, fungi, (laughs) necrophilia. No. (laughs) Not that far. Not going to slander him. But no, we are very interested in parasites and fungus. I just think the whole dark side of biology or the fact that we really shouldn't be calling the dark side because nature's nature. Just all this stuff that nature comes up with, especially just the messed up stuff from the human Mm -hmm. perspective, is so fascinating. The stuff that humans would never think of. Yes. Yeah, I love it. And the stuff that humans are afraid to look at. Because I'm like, why not? Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I want to learn everything. Yes. Um, if you don't know who we are, by the way, we're not scientists, but we have studied science in various ways, mm-hmm. mostly self-taught. Yeah. Um, and we're huge nerds, and we're friends. And so what we do is we take these complicated articles, and we break it down so you can understand it. So, hopefully. We also make a lot of jokes. Yes, we do. We have fun here. Yes, we do. Welcome. Laugh with us. Eat some ice cream. Ha 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 ha. Ha. Maybe like that. Like that. Uh, <laughs> exactly like that, or you can't listen anymore. Exactly. Um, so, so this research was conducted by scientists uh, Andreas Nondrup, Bjorn Bowman, Charles A. Quada, uh, Annette B. Jensen, Paul G. Becker, Henrik Defeinlicht, I'm so sorry if I We're butchered that. We're also very good at pronouncing people's names. We're so good. Especially, we never make mistakes. Especially when you hail from the University of Copenhagen, Denmark. Yeah. I'm just so good at those. Oh, yeah. We're American, and we're sorry. Mm-hmm. Very sorry. Continue. I also should note here that this is kind of a curious case in that this research is currently only available as a preprint. Um, this means that it is not formally published and might not yet have been peer-reviewed by an outside group. Oh! another science and podcast exclusive mm-hmm. despite this though um all the regular pop size sites pretty much reported it on it as if it were published i'm guessing because the university of denmark generally does pretty good science so um, it's hot it's trust hot. it mm-hmm. but don't trust it too much yeah we don't know yet so exactly i'm not really sure why this happens uh but they we op- are no peers to be reviewing but if any of you are, you know, review it up. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the optimist in me hopes that this is a play by this week's authors to hopefully upset the extremely skewed power dynamic between researchers and the blatantly predatory journals they often need to get published in to make their living. Oh, yes. Stir the pot. I mm-hmm. love that. It was on Bio, Bio or Ziv, which is literally a preprint server for all, all, every. It's, it's like a big ass repository. For all every? All every. Wow. Uh-huh. That is big. <laughs> 
plus, um, as I already alluded to, this work was done by multiple people in a high-tech research lab at a swanky university. Swanky. Uh, so we may as well at least hear them out. Yeah, let's hear them out. I'm excited. Mm -hmm. If it's about fungus, I'm in. Indeed. The paper's title, A Pathogenic Fungus Uses Volatiles to Entice Male Flies into Fatal Matings with Infected Female Cadavers. Gross. Mm -hmm. I love it. Uh, oh before God. that, though, we should do a few fun facts. Very goth. Okay, yes. Oh, yeah. This is the other thing that we do here. If you're new, after we introduce the article, we share some facts that are completely unrelated. So if you're <laughs> expecting this to have anything to do with what we were just saying, you're going to be disappointed. You also might have been lured in by the title that we haven't decided on yet, but it might not have anything to do with Yeah, the a lot of the things we say don't have anything to do with the other things. So what's It's your... funny to <laughs> us. <laughs> what's your funny little fact? So, um, do you know what a... You definitely know because you like sharks. Uh, what a <gasps> what a nictitating membrane is? I do, although I thought it was just nictitating. 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 There's like two... There's like a built-in stutter. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's rude. <laughs> Okay. Nictitating, then. Yeah. Membrane. It's a secondary, it's like an eyelid under an eyelid, or instead of an eyelid, that closes either sideways or upside down over an eye to protect it sometimes. Yeah. So, uh, sharks, for instance, a lot of them, especially like the really, really fast-moving predatory ones, have a nictitating membrane. Like the white sharks. Indeed. So blood doesn't, literally blood doesn't get in their eyes. Blood and scales, don't, uh, exactly. also. Yeah. Because, yeah, yeah. like, they rip into things. And fur. In their case, oh yeah, yeah. So it's like a it's like a white covering that goes whoosh over their eyes right as they get really close to biting something, and which is actually sharks. This is not what you're talking about, but <laughs> you said sharks, so I have to say this. Sure. The last like few inches of like targeting their prey, they don't use their sight at all. They use the ampullae of Lorenzini, so they're measuring the electricity coming off of the animal as it moves its muscles. Love that. So cool. Mm -hmm. Continue. So cats have one. Really, cats. Oh yeah, cats, cats have, have an entertaining memory. Well, it doesn't go all the way across, does it? It does. It does. Yeah, you um, I've, I should probably, I should have probably uh, pulled this video, but now I don't really know how to find it. But it's like I've seen, uh, you know how rich people sometimes have tigers. Uh, yeah. So, uh, you know, they just post videos of like them doing cute stuff, which is pretty problematic because they're not supposed to be like cutesy animals. Um, yeah. So I, I've seen a close up of like a tiger waking up and you do see like the little membrane thing uh, come out. And I just completely forgot about it until I uh, reconciled that fact. Yeah, I remember when you said it, I was like, oh, yeah, I've seen a little thing sometimes when Jack is really sleepy. Mm -hmm. So it is reduced uh, or lost in most mammals, yeah. uh, but just not cats. And I think another one I'm not remembering. And it's the little like pink thing that we have in the corner that used to be it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now ours just just garbage. Say like, hello to your vestigial, vestigial, vestigial. This cat. I'm missing syllables all over the place. <laughs> anyway, say goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> What's your fun fact? Okay, my fun fact. I have a lot to choose from this week because I just got back from the Galapagos Islands. Oh, yeah. I learned a lot there. I was there for 12 days, and it was the most magical experience of my life. So I learned that I want to live in the Galapagos is one thing. <laughs> um, okay, so one thing that I learned while I was there that did surprise me is that this is crazy. So you know Darwin's finches, mm -hmm. the 13 different species. And they all have different sized beaks, but they're also different that they can no longer hybridize. And so they are, by all definitions, very distinct species. Right, because the hybrids just do piss poor in the wild. Yeah, they're they're sterile. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's very important to the theory of evolution and of natural selection that that happens, that you have distinct species of finches on each island and sometimes in different 
elevations on each island. They are very distinct, different species, but to the naked eye, they look almost identical. The mm. beak size is really the only way you can tell them apart and slight color variations and size variations. But Darwin, when he arrived at the islands, he didn't even realize that they were different species or that they were all finches. He thought one of them was a mockingbird. He thought <laughs> they were swallows. He didn't give a sh- he so didn't he just know. didn't really know birds that well. He really didn't. Which is there, fun because he raised he, pigeons. He was there for beetles. He raised pigeons later. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, but anyway, that's not even my fun fact. My fun <laughs> fact is humans, how distantly related we are genetically, DNA-wise, to our most closest relatives, chimpanzees and bonobos, is actually closer than the finches are in the different islands. Wow. Yeah. So they've been radiating for a while then. Longer than we have, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, about 3.5 million years, where we have only been radiating for like 50,000. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's fun. <laughs> a bunch of finches are older than us, which yeah. doesn't make sense because they're literally dinosaurs. So these but different really finches that you literally can't tell apart by sight are more different from each other than we are from chimpanzees. That's caused a lot of disruption in, like, science in general. Like, yeah. just, like, the um, adoption and, and injection of, like, genomics and DNA into mm-hmm. a lot of uh, taxonomy. Um, yeah. There are a lot of people that are really resistant to it. Um, when I was in school, one of my professors uh, liked to talk about it because he found it funny. Um, a lot of morpholo- morphological biologists call them the gene jocks. Yes. <laughs> because they just come and, like, you know, fuck everything they up. They bust but... through, and they're like, listen, everything you thought is wrong. Look at this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which is, you know, a lot of it's right. Yeah. You know, Dina doesn't lie, but yeah. Yeah. It's so interesting. But yeah, like, and that was one of the biggest obstacles that Darwin and other evolutionists faced when they were first, you know, coming out with this stuff was people wanting to feel very superior and completely different from animals. Oh, people still do. Yes. And people want to because yeah. we're special. We want to be special. Otherwise, what are we eating? <laughs> I think is the core conflict for a lot of people. Oh, that's fair. Yeah. But anyway, it's interesting to know that as science progresses, it keeps shedding a light on the fact that we are not that different from animals. Nope. We are animals, in fact. Indeed. Yeah. A lot of their genes even make their way into us horizontally sometimes, which is fun. Yes. Jared loves to talk about the horizontal gene transfer. <laughs> And I love to talk about how we're not as special as we think we are <laughs> and should respect each other more as other species on the planet. You ever see that? Uh, how well do you know Courage the Cowardly Dog? I know Courage pretty well. We go way back. Do you remember the Are You Perfect episode with that weird-ass fetus in the thing saying, yes. like, you're not perfect, nobody is. Or it's true. Some variant of that. Yeah. Should I get a tattoo of that? Yes. Yes. Creepy. I'll get the one that says, return the slap. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You don't remember that, do you? No. Damn it. <laughs> See, I I remember watching Courage the Cowardly Dog, but do I remember details of specific episodes? Of course not. I remember some of them, just because some of the monsters were, like, genuinely unnerving for a child. They were. The artists three. Uh, the illustrations. That's what it is. The illustrations on that show were so good. Yeah. But so trippy. And then they had Freaky Fred. You gotta remember that guy. Freaky Fred, I the do remember. The fucking barber. He so scary. Yeah. Oh, God. Anyway, yeah. this is not a Courage the Cowardly Dog podcast. <laughs> it could be, but it's not. So, after we do the fun fact corner, we stray back towards the topic we're talking about, but not quite, 
like the jargon corner mm-hmm. where we pull out science terms that are kind of dry and boring and we tell you what they are and make them fun. So Jared, what have you brought us? So first up is going to be a volatile organic compound. Volatile organic compounds? Mm-hmm. So that would be something that is carbon-based but is unstable and could bond with a lot of other things? Half right. That's what I go for here. <laughs> so uh, chemically speaking, volatile organic compounds, or VOCs for short, which I'm going to be going with because... Vox. Vox. Um, are definitely carbon-based, uh, but with very high vapor pressure and low water solubility. Oh. Uh, these last two things are fancy ways of saying that they exist largely in a gaseous state and yeah. don't readily dissolve in water. Okay, which is weird, because most everything does dissolve in water. Exactly. And those qualities make VOCs extremely effective for communicating messages via chemical signals uh, over small and large distances, both under and above water. Oh, yeah, because it's not going to fuck up your signal. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And as such, their use has become extremely widespread across the multicellular tree of life. Mm-hmm. It's like organic Wi-Fi. Essentially, yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> Next up is entomopathogenic. Entomo, having to do with bugs. Mm-hmm. Pathogenic, having to do with diseases. So bug diseases. Yeah. Yep. Cool. Um, <laughs> entomopathogenic is a classification applied to uh, organisms that have specifically evolved to infect and often kill insects and other arthropods. Mm-hmm. So, like, something that attacks a spider, they're not insects, but it's still characterized as a Bug problems. Yeah, bug adjacent. <laughs> I think the entomopathogenic organism most broadly known to the general public would probably be uh, cordyceps fungus, uh, some of which can turn the dead bodies of their hosts, uh, after killing them, of course, into some pretty gnarly sites as they erupt out to spread their spores. Yeah. With uh, cordyceps, you often just have, like, a literal mushroom just sticking out of a dead insect. Mm-hmm. I like it. Mm-hmm. I want a tattoo of that as well. It does look really, really cool. Some of them, um, like Acanthomyces, is a really fun one. That just makes it look gnarly. It's just like spikes of fungus radiating out of every part of the body. I've seen that. Oh, yeah. Oh, spiky, mother. Yeah. It's insane. Uh, next up in the jargon corner is the extended phenotype. All right. Well, a phenotype is something an animal. Well, it's it's what makes a, a thing different from the other th- It's a type. Not really. <laughs> um, a phenotype, it's like, it's a variety. So, uh, scientifically, which is kind of dumb, a phenotype is uh, the outward expression of a, of an organism's genotype. Um, and That's what I'm trying to say. It's like what it is. Yeah, exactly. Um, in plain yeah. English, it's just, it's the outcome of their genetics. It's just like what that presents to the world. What is? So, like, Madison is her DNA's phenotype. Yes. It's just, like, what I am a phenotypical Madison Dix. hmm Because I have my DNA, and here I am expressing it. There you go. Yeah. And so an extended <laughs> phenotype would be the expression of one's genes in another organism? Yes, but not limited to just that. Okay, cool. So, uh, the extended phenotype is a concept introduced by evolutionary biologist Richard Dawkins. He's the one that everyone knows as kind of snooty for some reason. Okay, yeah. um, uh, in the early 80s, um, and it explores how an organism's phenotype can extend outside of the organism itself. Uh, one such way this happens in nature is through the production and use of VOCs, which are synthesized using an organism's genetic toolkit and spread out to its surroundings. Oh, so like when they make 
the organic Wi-Fi and it spreads around, that is produced by their DNA and it's outside their body. So. Exactly. But it's not just that either. Like a beaver dam is a beaver's extended phenotype. Yeah, it's imprint on the world around it based on its genetics. Exactly. Okay, cool. Because if the beaver genetics weren't there, then the dam would not have happened. That's correct. Mm -hmm. Beavers. Thank you, beavers. They make us feel better about ourselves as humans because they're like, look, we're not the only destructive ones. And beavers are like, okay, mm -hmm. I built a dam. What? You destroyed the planet. <laughs> they're also kind of fun because if you play uh, the sound of rushing water to them, they have a compulsive need to just build the dam. So they don't like, even have to be around real water. Sounds like people. <laughs> <laughs> I guess so. We're <laughs> really just beavers. Pretty much. Okay. All right. This one is kind of a long one, uh, but last up in the jargon corner is the fungus that was alluded to in the title of this week's paper. Entomophthora muscae, sometimes called fly death fungus. Well, that, that really tells it like it is. Pretty much. <laughs> I don't have to guess. It kills a fly. It does kill a fly. But it also does something creepier. Yes, it does. All right. So, uh, Entomoth... Oh my god. Ent... <laughs> We're gonna call it E. Muscae from now on. It actually um... translates to Insect Destroyer, which is an insane translation. E. Muscae lives the life of a parasitoid, or an organism that has evolved to incorporate the untimely death of its host into its life cycle. Eh. Yeah. We've all known one. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why that was funny. Um, in E. Muscae, uh, this sequence of events begins when airborne spores make contact with a suitable host. Generally a housefly, uh, but flies in the flesh fly and blowfly families can be infected by E. Muscae as well. Good. Hey. I don't like flesh flies or blowflies. They're both pollinators. God damn it. Why do uh, the things that I that. dislike do so many good things for me? <laughs> Nature is a black and white. I'm Woo! like a beaver looking at water. So uh, those spores, called canidia, that's just a fun word, uh, will germinate and grow their way inside the body. They basically pierce their way inside uh, through one of the softer sections, like a joint or underneath an exoskeletal plate. <laughs> Inside, the fungal strands, or hyphae, uh, will continue to eat, grow, and expand from within. Wait, hold on. The fly's already dead. Nope. Very alive. Oh, oh, what does that feel like? I, I don't, don't know. know. But yeah. then it reaches the fly's brain. Oh, no. Um, and when that happens, it yeah. induces a characteristic set of behaviors known as summit disease. Oh, no. So when this happens, uh, the fly is compelled by its fungal puppeteer to climb up high. Uh, usually on a plant, but pretty much any vertical surface will Always do. Always climb up high. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because the next part is in a bird or something, right? No. Okay. <laughs> Good guess, though. Yeah, thanks. Um, so when it uh, gets high enough on that surface, it's going to extend its proboscis to touch the surface. Got this little tongue thing. Mm -hmm. uh, but then the fungus will uh, create a biological glue and seal the fly there. So like he's like the kid in A Christmas Story That's that gets stuck to the pole? Yes, but he doesn't let go. <laughs> oh my god, terrible. Indeed. Uh, I kind of feel bad for flies, honestly. Soon afterward, uh, the fly, because it's stuck to the damn wall, I'm stuck. the fly will spread out its legs and wings, tilt its abdomen away from the surface, uh, and die. So it does a handstand on its tongue and dies. Basically. It's a way to go. Mm -hmm. uh, but as I said, the fun doesn't stop there. Because E. Muscae still has to ensure that the next generation of spores are able to find their own flies to kill. So inside its cadaver, the fungus will grow and grow and grow and continue to grow until it cracks open the softer parts of the abdomen and reaches the open air. Uh, so this is present to what we can see on the fly as a series of white bands. 
uh, when conditions are right, those white bands of hyphae will produce sporangia, those structures that house the spores, uh, and shoot them out in the hope that they will land on another suitable host. Sporangia are the things that we talked about in the slime mold episode that look like little space needles. Oh, I like that. Yeah. Yeah, so the canidia are inside those, those sporangia. They shoot them out. And now we may jump into this week's topic. I forgot that we were still in the jargon corner. Oh, <laughs> well, that's all good. Right. That means we're doing a good job. Yeah. Um, all right, you ready? All right, we begin the article. So E. muscae is uh, classified not only as a parasitoid, but also an obligate parasite, uh, meaning that it's completely unable to carry out its life cycle without making use of one of its hosts. Which means it has no choice but to destroy another life form in order to survive. Yes, indeed. And as such, it is under constant and rather strong pressure uh, for, from natural selection to up its chances of host contact as much as fungally possible. <laughs> Fungally possible. I like that too. For example, it is also able to detect when it has infected a host too close to wintertime, and actually take steps to protect its cadaver so it can survive and hopefully infect new hosts in the spring. The fly drops to the ground and just becomes covered in in protective spores. Oh wow. Oh yeah. Wow. Mm -hmm. And not only that, but the internal brain takeover and ensuing summit disease aren't even the only way that E. muscae can manipulate its victims. Oh, I'm scared. Oh, it's but so before cool. Before we get into what's scary, you mentioned winter. Do they live around here? Yes. Oh my gosh! Around here is like the northeast United States. Oh yeah, E. muscae is almost ubiquitous like across the world. Really? It's Everywhere. a very common fungus. I find E. muscae flies all over the summer. Hell yeah! Oh yeah, They're, this fungus is so... It's really good at what it does. So back to the behavioral manipulation. Okay. Yeah. Uh, because this fungus is actually uh, even more unique in its ability to manipulate not just its host, but uninfected members of the same species as well. Oh. It has been known for some time now that male house flies are somehow attracted with and even attempt to mate with infected female cadavers. Very dead at this point. Male house flies are freaks. Yes. Scientifically, they are freaks. Mm -hmm. Uh, this phenomenon could be commonly observed in the wild, despite how drastically different fungified females can look with their abdomens distended and literally bursting with fungal hyphae. They look like this. One, fungified females is a great name for a female punk band. Oh, it is. Two, okay, so it's glued to a table. Yeah. Um, but its, it's butt is exploding mm -hmm. with white stuff. Ew. And there's another one on the back, you know, doing the nature thing that they do. Um, <laughs> so that's unsettling at best. I'm glad. So you saw how drastically different they look, right? Very different. Male yes. houseflies can tell the difference. They're it's... like, wow, that one's dead and, and exploding. Yeah, it's been experimentally shown that male houseflies are capable of telling the difference between infected and normal fly cadavers but still mate with infected female cadavers anyway. Uh, so being in such close contact with these infective spores has been shown to result in rates of transmission of up to 90% in those unlucky males. Nine out of 10 chance of getting infected if you fuck a cadaver. And and they're going in without, they weren't infected to begin with. Nope. So it's just them, their nature, that they're into this. Okay. <laughs> I am judging them. <laughs> I am kink shaming these flies right now. I'm so sorry. It's okay. It's okay. It's understandable. Any flies are listening. Ew. It's understandable <laughs> given how uh, I kind of just threw you into this. I was not prepared. <laughs> no. Terrifying and creepy, but I like it. It's goddamn insane. It's interesting. Uh, so as powerful as this trick is, it has not really yet been at all figured out how E. muscae pulls this secondary manipulation off. Yeah, like, why are the male house flies freaks? Mm -hmm. 
is the fungus doing that, or is that just, are they just freaks? We don't know. Uh, but our authors reason that it may be a result of olfactory or scent-based sexual mimicry. Oh, the organic Wi-Fi. Mm -hmm. So sexual mimicry occurs when an, when an unrelated organism uh, evolves to exploit the mate recognition, uh, you know, the quote-unquote software, yep. of another unrelated organism for its own purposes. Example of this, maybe, correct me if I'm wrong, mm -hmm. but in Galapagos... <laughs> There's only one species of bee, so it's the main pollinator, or mm. was before introduced species. But uh, it's the females are all black, and they're the ones who are out and about. You never see the males; they're all yellow. But the females are really attracted to yellow things, so they're looking for these males to mate with. Mm. And so most of the flowers in Galapagos have evolved to be yellow. Yep, that's actual mimicry. Woo! Mm -hmm. uh, another example: uh, flowering <laughs> plants like orchids releasing deceptive pheromones specific to their pollinators. Um, while not necessarily sexual mimicry, there are also tons of known instances of parasitic and or pathogenic fungi, bacteria, nematodes, and more <laughs> using VOCs uh, to attract their, their host as well. Although this could be sexual mimicry, we don't really know, because in the vast majority of cases, the source of attraction is not known. Is sexual mimicry what's allowing E. Muskay to lead these flies to their horny demise? <laughs> <laughs> What a sentence. <laughs> yes. No, I don't know. We don't know, but our authors decided to set up some experiments to find out. Oh, did they find out? Maybe. Okay. <laughs> so, the first step towards an answer uh, required the rearing of pupae of the housefly species Musca domestica. Tiny baby houseflies. Indeed. You've definitely seen one in your house at some point. Yeah. They're ubiquitous. They're all over the world. <laughs> so, they got these houseflies. <laughs> okay. And they exposed them uh, to some of the conidia, uh, those spore-bearing structures of the muskae, which, to be fair, has a pretty damn high chance of happening anyway if they lived out their short adult lives in the wild. They're adults for a month, then they die. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that sucks. Indeed. Uh, once our authors had some fresh fungus-infested cadavers, some great imagery there, mm. uh, they ran an experiment in meaning behavior to see how the attraction of uninfected male houseflies uh, to infected hosts lines up with the literature. They did this using a rather simple, repeated setup of enclosing uninfected flies in a little arena along with an infected uh, and uninfected female cadaver. So, in an at first kind of disappointing twist, uh, their results showed that males in this experiment were no more statistically likely to hang out with or try to mate with the infected cadaver over the uninfected. I'm not disappointed by that. <laughs> well, they were. Uh, this trend held regardless of whether the infected cadavers were in the more rampant early stages of spore formation, about three to eight hours post-mortem. Mm -hmm. uh, you can actually see a literal halo of spores visible around the um, cadaver at this point. Ugh. Um, and this also didn't change in the, in the later stages, uh, about 26 to 28 hours, when the production had ramped down. Okay, so, like, no matter what, they weren't into it. Well, however... Where they weren't any more into it than they were to the other ones. Indeed. Okay. Uh, but that was probably just because of the enclosed area, because... While they didn't seem to care whether a cadaver was infected or not, uh, the later stages of, of spore formation did see a rather significantly higher number of matings in total. With both? Yes. Oh. But they're all in the same room? Mm-hmm. So there was a small arena, infected yeah. on one side, unaffected on the other side. They have the choice so of where they want to hang out. So the spores could technically be everywhere. Indeed. Yeah. Okay. This uptick in mating behavior happened only when an infected female cadaver was placed in the arena, and never when the infected fly was a male. 
Interesting. Mm -hmm. So all of the tested males uh, in the experiment were isolated and, and incubated in order to gauge the effectiveness of fungal transmission during the early versus late stages of, of spore formation. Okay. And sure enough, the difference in risk between the late stage uh, was really rather dramatic. Uh, this is when the uptake and mating happened. About 73% of all those males got infected. This is uh, compared to the early stage. That where is a potent STD. A potent STD. Yeah. Uh, the early stages only saw about 15% of flies getting infected. Whew. Which makes sense because they weren't any more likely to mate. Yeah. Um, so this basically confirmed uh, that the sex-specific manipulation of uninfected males by late-stage cadavers uh, confirmed very clear and tangible benefits to, to the fungus. Yeah, so like the fungus definitely benefited from this behavior that the males were doing once the fungus was like everywhere, but that still doesn't tell us whether the fungus made it happen. We just know it benefits them. That's a really good question. Mm -hmm. Not gonna answer it yet. Uh -huh. ah. So throughout the previous experiments, the authors also observed occasional instances of males being solely attracted to fungal canidia. Freaks. That's like being attracted to like gonorrhea on the ground. Ew. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> these flies. Ooh, an STD. Let me pick it up. Like, in, what? in these instances, the males would go as far as to extend their proboscis to taste the extremely infectious spores. Stop it! <laughs> Stop it! Oh, I love this paper. Um, this made our authors wonder whether the Canadia alone would be sufficient to, to attract a host. And so they put some flies in a capital Y-shaped tube. And at this point, one of the scientists then went on a date, and his date asked him, What do you do for work? And he said... I watch flies have sex with dead flies. And sometimes just with an STI. They just lick it off the ground. Well, maybe they're just more forward. Would you like then. to order an appetizer? <laughs> <laughs> I want to interview them and ask them really personal questions about their dating life. But that's not what we're doing here. So, back to what's disgusting. So you got a Y-shaped tube, right? I guess. The flies are at the bottom. Okay. And then you got the forks at the top, right? Yeah. The flies are starting at the bottom, and in either of those above forks, you have a few infected cadavers or uninfected cadavers, and they're sitting in a trap that's out of view. So, uh, Madison, did they choose to fly towards the uninfected cadavers more, or did they choose to fly towards the cadavers more? So they gave these flies a choice. They're like, do you want to fuck this dead fly or this dead fly that's super diseased. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna bet these freaks chose the diseased ones. They chose the path to infection. And not only that, but the initial attraction to just the spores was exhibited by both sexes. The females too? Mm -hmm. I'm disappointed. Yep, it is really looking like evolution did houseflies dirty here, because how the fuck has natural selection not thrown them a single adaptive bone to defend themselves against the muskeg? I feel that this is a prime example of how evolution slash natural selection is a C-plus system, mm -hmm. which is something I like to talk about a lot. Oh, yeah. Um, if it doesn't kill everyone, sometimes it gets passed on, even though it's gross and not helpful. <laughs> My thinking is that it might have something to do with, like, how hard it is to, like, survive as a fly without finding a mate. Like, they have a month to eat and do their lives and find a mate, so, you know... They really are not choosy. Yeah. I mean, it's like all of puberty and your 20s condensed into one week. Oh, that might have something to do with it, but... I am so glad I'm not a fly. Or fly-sized in any way. That's true. Ugh. The yeah. tiny world. It is vicious out there. Oh, it is fucked up. Mm. Um, so, anyway. 
<laughs> the fact that flies were being drawn to their death by something they couldn't even see, uh, because of the Y-shaped tube, they couldn't actually see what they were flying towards at first. Means they were drawn by something that wasn't a visual cue, which means it could have been organic Wi-Fi. Indeed. Uh, those compounds, those VOCs, we should say the actual word, uh, yeah. those compounds that are nice and gassy and great for sending messages. So this hunch uh, was confirmed by trapping those potential volatiles using a method called headspace sampling and presenting them to living males. Now, Madison, how do you think they were able to measure the level of stimulation in the, of a fly in response to a puff of gas? Do they put, like, little somethings on their antennas and watch how much they dance? Kind of. So they take these teeny tiny glass rods, mm -hmm. um, like, just so, so, so teeny tiny. Yeah, they, they stick one in the antennae, and then they stick one somewhere in the eye. And they can measure the neural antennal response to um, when the antennae get stimulated. Are antennae, like, an indicator of arousal? That's where they smell. It's where they smell. Okay, okay, okay. Gotcha. Oh, I should have said that first. So, so you know how an insect sense, sense of smell is mostly in its antennae? <laughs> okay. I just learned that. So they, they put these crazy tiny glass tubes in their antenna and their eye to measure how stimulated their olfactory senses are. Mm -hmm. All right. How much they're smelling. Indeed. Okay. So the resulting electroantennographs, that's such a fun word, uh, recorded a significantly higher antennal response to samples containing only spores and fully infected cadavers compared to living or dead control flies. Hmm. So there are smells coming specifically from the infected cadavers. Indeed. And even more specifically, uh, a markedly higher response to infected cadavers in the late stages of spore formation versus early. Just so, like in the first experiment. The longer they're infected, the more smells they're giving off. That checks out. Indeed. And isolating some of these volatiles and, again, exposing them to uh, males individually revealed that much of this long-distance attraction was actually caused by an unusual handful of molecules that had not actually previously known to be attracted to houseflies in the first place. Huh. Mm-hmm. Do they, you think they're going to start using them for, like, fly traps or something? They actually talked about that in the discussion. They always do. On the Galapagos, wasps are a problem. They're not native, and they have these traps everywhere that they have wasp pheromones in to catch them. Good. Yeah, so same deal. Yeah, let's keep those ecosystems native. If you want to play a drinking game, listeners, count how many times I mentioned the Galapagos in all of the episodes from now on. <laughs> Just drink every time I say it. Okay. It's your personality now. It is. Yeah. <laughs> Our authors then wondered if E. Muske was doing anything to make their cadavers more attractive up close, because they would kind of have to be. Yeah. Um, and so they gathered what are called cuticular extracts, which is like a skin sample, but from their exoskeleton, because insects don't have skin. <laughs> Weird. I think I'm just trying to gross you out as much as possible this yeah. episode. <laughs> no skin. <laughs> So they took those cuticular extracts uh, from controlled cadavers and early-stage and late-stage infected ones in order to compare their chemical makeup. What they found was a sex-specific and distinct and reliable set of chemical changes in infected cadavers as time progressed and they transitioned from early to late stage. Like pheromones. Indeed. Uh, included in, in this transition was a significant increase in what are called canonical housefly cuticular hydrocarbons. These are molecules that are naturally found in the, in the exoskeleton of houseflies. Mm -hmm. But what was weird is that these molecules were increasing in number long after the fly was dead. Oh, so this, the fungus was, like, making them. Yep. They or... did a little genetic testing. They found that those volatiles and these changes in the cuticular hydrocarbons, this was all being done by the fungus. Oh, my God. Uh-huh. Like a beaver's dam. Like it, a beaver's it dam. It is that much work. Goddamn extended phenotype, man. Damn. So, the emerging picture... 
It's just all bad. Yeah. It's crazy, man. I'm just really glad I'm not a fly. Right, because in addition to all the other crazy shit that he must can do to carry out its life cycle, the overwintering, yeah. the mm -hmm. exploding out of the abdomen, uh, everything, the summit disease, the behavioral manipulation, mm -hmm. it can also alter the chemical makeup of his host post-mortem after fucking death in order to continue the chain of infectivity. Wow. So much that even uninfected males will ignore what they're seeing and try their chances of mating with a bloated, infective husk. And people used to think that parasites were simple by nature. Oh my god, people are so dumb. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that is fascinating. We're no better than houseflies. No. Well, I guess we don't get attracted to infected fungus. Hopefully. That we know of. But, okay, so this reminds <laughs> me of something that I've thought about before. Okay. Like, you know when you're up late at night thinking about the origins of humanity? Sometimes... I think about how people are really fixated on the idea of the soul, how the soul maybe is just like how we experience ourselves. But what if the soul, if there is a soul, is actually a fungus that has infected all human beings and this fungus that's potentially affected all living things on Earth is similar to like the selfish gene that causes us to replicate? Like what if everything on Earth is controlled by a fungus? Why did you say this? Um, to Why bring you down here with me. Am I? <sighs> what if God's a mushroom? That's all I'm saying. I'm like genuinely unnerved by this thought. <laughs> this is why I have insomnia. <laughs> <laughs> well, no fucking wonder. God yeah. damn. Uh, yeah, that's a terrifying concept. Or not. I mean, it's is it any be... more terrifying than a person controlling things in the sky? I think not. Yeah, that's true. It's also kind of close to reality, though, because about a third of humans on the planet are infected with toxoplasmosis. I know! So, like, and that can manipulate human behavior to a small degree. Quite a bit, yeah. So, yeah, maybe. Maybe, right? Maybe. Holy crap. The god fungus. Uh, the god. <laughs> that's the next, that's the sequel to The Selfish Gene. Oh, I love that. <laughs> the god fungus. I'll write it. I mean, a large... With absolutely no credentials. <laughs> to be fair, though, the largest, the largest organism on Earth is a fungus. I know! So, yeah. Mycorrhizal network. Mycorrhizal network. Woo! Big old mile-long thingy. Which is basically tree brain. Tree brain? Yeah. Yeah. So... Fungus can be tree brain. Fungus can make dead flies uh, be attractive to living ones. Maybe fungus is the reason I can't sleep at night. Maybe. It's definitely the reason you can't sleep yeah. at night at the very least. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so I... Uh, that's the end. All right. That is the end. Yep. We leave you with that terrifying thought, dear listeners. And if you've enjoyed our rambles, our information, um, our friendship, then please consider subscribing to the podcast. Yeah, man. Telling a friend or an enemy who you think you want to gross out. <laughs> um, or whatever. I don't care who you tell. Just tell someone to listen to it. And then make sure they do. And yeah. then... Um, follow up. Yeah. Also, you can follow us on social media. We post sometimes. <laughs> Science underscore in underscore podcast, um, where you can see like visual stuff and like more fun stuff about the content we cover on the podcast. Show. You want to hear Get a joke? to that. Uh, I do want to hear a joke. No, don't. He always does this. He's going to turn off the recording. What did the uh, uninfected uh, cadaver say to the infected cadaver? <sighs> Probably nothing.